0: This is Marjorie Melpedi, and we have a different kind of podcast for you today that focuses on a new report we released with the Rudman Family Foundation on peer support programs in college student mental health. The report explores how these programs have evolved how they are currently being used, why they are such an important part of college student mental health, and what needs to happen to ensure that they are safe and effective. Today, we hear from two leaders of peer support programs, Daniel Murney of Lean On Me and Sam Orley of the Support Network. Afterwards, Dr. Zoe Ragusius our clinical director, and I will discuss what we've heard. Our first guest is Daniel Murney, Daniel Murney is the CEO of Lean on Me, a national nonprofit organization offering a customized school-specific encrypted peer-to-peer text line that provides access to confidential non-clinical mental health support. Lean on Me's peer supporters are anonymous students whose primary job is to empathetically and actively listen to the person seeking help. Daniel Murney was an early team member of Lean on Me when it started at MIT when he was just a freshman. Welcome, Daniel.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you. And I'm really, really excited to hear your story. Maybe we can start with the founding of Lean on Me at MIT. Give us a sense of sort of why this was started and how it came about.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it was largely reactionary for us. When I was a freshman, we had a series of suicides on campus and we were sort of stuck in this Hayes trying to figure out what is going on? Why is this happening? Because there wasn't a lack of resources. MIT was and and continues to be quite good at recognizing the pressure that it puts on students, but there was not a good resource for peer to peer support. A lot of the resources that existed were professional resources offered to students for which there is a substantial barrier to entry, be that internal for the student to recognize that they may need support from this internal hesitation or external with wait times or with scheduling or with perceived lack of anonymity. And we just wanted to connect MIT students to other MIT students. I mean, that was very much the goal from the get-go. We had no intention of really turning this into anything Apart from this small community-specific resource, but after we launched Adam IT, there was this massive influx of demand from other communities, at which point we started to realize that, you know, maybe this is more of an endemic issue. That is prevalent in other communities as well.
0: Can, can I stop you there? Because one of the things that's so interesting about the proliferation of peer support services on college campuses is just the, the real interest on the part of students. And now we're sort of seeing it from administrators as well. But again, you were, at, you were a student at the time of, of when you founded this with your colleagues. Why do you think students were at that point in time and continue to be Really seeking out one another. And sometimes that can be in addition to other services or instead of other services. I, I'm not sure that people who are, you know, a generation older than you understand that or forget that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of inherent value in sharing stories and experiences with people who are, you know, we frequently use this analogy of if you're a student who's starting to sort of go underwater with stress and workload, there's a substantial difference in the kind of support that is provided to you by professional resources and those that are often condoned and provided by administrations that tend to come in the form of this sort of life raft or saving device that is thrown to you to pull you out of the water. And that's incredibly helpful, but sometimes there's a lot of value in talking to someone who is in that Sinking ship with you. But I I don't know that there is a generational divide in seeking support from peers. Peer support is sort of an inherently human phenomenon that plays out in, in all sorts of environments and across generations. It might be difficult for a given group to see this playing out within another group. But I think if you look within your own conversations and within the ways in which we seek support as individuals we frequently turn to our peers. And I think this is true across generations, but it even though it's true across generations, it might be difficult to see how that plays out for a different generation. And of course there's this increase in loneliness and isolation and I don't know how much digitization is to blame or helpful with that. I think that's a really difficult catch 22 that for those of us who work in this industry.
0: I know that Lean on me has seen your demand for services increase. Let me ask you a little bit about this practice of peer support and what's next for it. What are some of the barriers to this really expanding in a safe and effective way? There's a lot of concern about safety and the risk. So talk a little bit to that and any other dynamics that you think are sort of in the way of this really becoming something super powerful on if not all campuses, but at least those that are really interested in doing this.
1: Yeah, I, I I don't think that the concern is misplaced. I don't think it's unfair to to feel that concern, nor to feel hesitant towards new services and potentially new solutions to old problems. I don't think I would treat this as a panacea, right? It's not, it's not sort of a, a one-off solution that replaces existing services. If anything, it is a supplement that allows for something of a more holistic approach where ideally students are both seeking support from one another and reaching out to professional services, but they're not waiting for the issues to really build to a point of crisis before reaching out. So it allows you to reach out with some of the smaller stuff and prevent what administrators frequently refer to as this avalanche effect, where problems just sort of snowball and build and build. And it results in these crowded and overwhelmed counseling centers where a lot of these issues, if you had started to to address them when they were small and talk to your peers and talk to your friends about them, maybe you could have prevented that buildup. I think that's a difficult question to, to ask, and certainly a difficult one to measure. But maybe at the very least, you can help and combat some of this for burdening of existing services.
0: It sounds like what you're saying is that even very successful support networks like Lean On Me are part of the solution, right? They're something that, that should be part of a more holistic approach to college student mental health, certainly. So what kind of role do you think Lean On Me plays? Is it more of a bridge to care? Are there some students for whom this is all they need Just you've been at this a long time and I know you can be both supportive but also you look critically at everything that we're using here and in terms of its value to the whole. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I think that's an incredibly interesting question actually and it's it's the kind of question sort of as we start to talk more about and think more about access to the kind of data that tells us about how people use, not only our service, but services across the board, these are the kinds of questions that start popping up. So who are the people that are seeking support? What has their experience been like? Where are they going after they reach out? It's an inherently difficult question, rather series of questions to answer. Simply because with an anonymous service, there's only so much that we know. For us, the intention very early on was to reach students who are otherwise not reaching out and are not seeking support. We really wanted to lower the barrier to entry, to seeking and receiving emotional support as much as possible. And presumably, if you lower that barrier to entry, now you can reach the people who otherwise are not seeking support. Whether or not those are the kinds of people we are reaching, frankly, we have no idea. We have some data, we have some metrics that we're collecting largely based on this sort of industry norm of asking supporters, asking our student volunteers at the end of a conversation what they talked about, whether the student had reached out to other services, whether they're planning on reaching out to someone else afterwards. So to go back to this bridge to care, sometimes these are students who have never sought support before other times these are students who are frequent utilizers of existing resources and are using this as an additional resource but the extent to which we're able to reach under accessed communities it's that's something i personally think a lot about and something that i think we're all yeah lean on me certainly but also as an industry trying to work towards but it's just the data question is is so tough because as soon as you start asking questions of users, you're increasing the barrier to entry to seeking support.
0: And this is coming from someone who is, and I'm forgetting exactly what you studied at MIT, but data analytics is certainly something y'all are comfortable with. It's probably an even bigger barrier for other groups who are less so, but the data question is is huge in this. And it's part of what we explore in in our report. I guess my last question is, do you see this being a realistic part of the future? Is there a way to get data, particularly efficacy data, so that these programs can be used more strategically and in a way that, you know, we can really, as you say, target as opposed to just kind of guess?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I mean, and, and I think that this paper that has been put together is an important step in that direction, in that it starts to break down some of these informational barriers between organizations and provides a greater overview of what the landscape looks like, who is working on what, and identifies shared objectives. Obviously, it's not enough. It's It's not gonna do it on its own, and you need to start identifying what are these key metrics of usage and success that we care about
0: These are great questions. And as we move forward in trying to get more specific around providing the right kind of data, we will return to you for another conversation and wish you all the luck with Lean On Me, which has added amazing value to so many students across the country. Thank you so much for your contribution. Keep up the great work and come back to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Now, I'd like to bring in Dr. Zoe Raguzios, who is Head of Counseling and Wellness Services at NYU, Clinical Director at MCI, and the co-author of our report that we are basing this series on, and is here to give us some of her reaction. Hello, Zoe. Are you there? I'm here. How's it going? Good. Very good. So glad that you're with us today. You know, when we have these conversations, it's always interesting to bring in people who are in your shoes, right? So who are really doing this work every day. I want to ask you about what Daniel talked about in terms of how Lean On Me was started, which was very sad in terms of the suicides at MIT and the way he describes the really sorrowful and complex sort of emotions that were happening on campus. The interesting thing is, despite the good mental health resources that they have and continue to have at MIT. Students were looking for something different and that co-passenger on the sinking ship analogy was really powerful. So what are your what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, I I would hate to think that students are connecting themselves to sinking ships, but I think I I know where he was going with it, which was to highlight that students want opportunities to connect beyond what Dan acknowledges to be the excellent mental health professional supports on their campus. So I, I really appreciated that he made that point because It isn't the lack of resources that's the impetus for students to connect with their peers. It is for several reasons. Beyond that, that it could be the preferred method, perhaps along with professional support, as he also says, but that students want to connect with each other. And there's a lot of different reasons that could be true, including, I think that he says this himself, that there are sort of high stakes when a student considers approaching a mental health professional. Is my problem important enough? you know, should I admit that I'm struggling? Am I going to have some kind of lost opportunities if I approach a professional? So in combination with professionals, students want to be able to talk to each other and be heard in a way that feels safe. And I've seen this myself when I have gathered students to talk about an incident on campus or generally addressing some kind of mental health issue or situation. As soon as I'm done talking, as soon as the professionals stop talking and perhaps end the session, students congregate toward each other. So they want to continue to talk. They want to talk to each other. And I think we need to be thinking about that and facilitating ways for them to do that safely.
0: Yeah, that's a great point, Zoe. So one of the things we wrote in the report is this very, this huge variety of different types of peer support services. And that in itself is, I think, an issue because they're not all the same. So lean on me is text-based. And I believe it's in the category of a listening program. I know you've had exposure to a number of different types of peer support programs. What is your view of, of this type of peer support, the listening support?
2: It's back to the idea that students want to be heard. They want to be heard. They want to do so where they feel that the stigma is lower. And it's so cathartic and powerful to really feel like somebody is listening to you, especially when You do feel overwhelmed, and you perhaps don't feel like there's enough attention being paid to your problem or how you're feeling. And the way they do it there with text is important because we've known for a long time that students are less and less interested and adept at using the phone to get their needs met. And during COVID, we found that some students were unable to identify private spaces to speak on the phone. So text based support was vital. And so While I don't think it's optimal to do ongoing text counseling, I think that text support and certainly text support with peers is so, so powerful for students. So that support is imperative. And again, students supporting each other, whatever the modality is that they're using. Is something we should help them facilitate.
0: So, one thing that Daniel talks about is the need for data. He gets actually pretty excited about this topic, which we love because we sort of call for the same thing in our paper when we talk about needing to understand really how these services are working, right? So, he talks about the need to understand how these services work for what population of students and For what issues, right? I mean, this this must resonate with you when you think about using peer support.
2: Absolutely. And if you think about our paper and how comprehensive it is in articulating the different kinds of programs that are out there, and there are so many different kinds. Efficacy data is vital in, in an institution deciding which one is going to be most appropriate for them and for which types of students. You know, maybe a peer listening program is important for a certain set of students, but a more psychoeducation type program is more appropriate for some others. And it would be great, especially when universities are looking at how to allot their limited resources. It would be great to have some efficacy data where we can say it's clear that this type of program is going to work for these types of students or for these kinds of issues and implement with some data
0: behind those decisions. Great. Thank you, Zoe. And now we'll take a quick break to hear from our co-host, Dana Humphrey. We hear all the
3: time from college and university administrators and mental health practitioners that the MC Feed is their go-to resource for the news and information they need to do their jobs
0: well. This targeted roundup of news and research on the health and well-being of college students is compiled into a streamlined, easily digestible newsletter and released every Wednesday afternoon. Go to marychristieinstitute.org slash subscribe to sign up. Our next guest is Sam Orley of The Support Network, a nonprofit organization that offers peer-led support groups via school-based chapters throughout the country. It began at the University of Michigan and grew out of Michigan's Wolverine Support Network. Sam Orley is the co-founder and chairman of The Support Network and served as the Wolverine Support Network's executive director while he was getting his business degree at Michigan. Welcome, Sam.
3: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: So glad you could be on this special edition of our podcast. I want to dig into some questions around strategy as it relates to this very interesting and sought-after practice on college campuses, which is peer-to-peer support for student mental health. But before doing that, I thought it would be helpful just describe for us the work of the support network and what happens in these group dynamics that you run.
3: Yeah, I'm happy to. And as you mentioned, I'm the co-founder and chairman of the the support Network, which is a 501c3 nonprofit that essentially serves as the umbrella to helping scale peer support to additional colleges around the country. So at each college, it's really a student organization. So we're empowering students through a partnership with administrators to provide these weekly groups to the student body at large. So these weekly groups, think six to 10 students two of which are trained, what we call leaders, to facilitate a conversation for an hour each week. So this group space is intended to be accessible, inclusive, and confidential. It's a place where students you know, mention that they really feel like they can be themselves. They feel comfortable sharing, sometimes sensitive, or topics that are meaningful to them. And the group facilitators, the leaders, are trained in a way so that they can facilitate dialogue around topics associated with mental health in a way that is honest and personal and respectful. Leaders are also equipped with knowledge of on and off campus resources as well as red flag protocols. Importantly, this is not therapy or clinical. There's no advice provided, but many students have found their experience to be therapeutic. In many ways.
0: That's great, Sam. So I want to ask you this is a service that looks like or could look like other services that are offered by the counseling center. But I want to get your take on the unique dynamic, which is really the student-to-student experience. So how would you describe the influence that college students have on each other? Because that's really the differentiator here for the group, is it not? You know, particularly when it comes to talking about your mental health
3: yeah and you know I'm, I'm a huge proponent of students being part of this equation to me they're the missing puzzle piece in this mental health crisis right now research shows that whether in times of crisis or celebration the number one place that students want to turn is to their peers and while adult figures might have influence because of their stature students have influence because of their relatability on going to the same school being part of that same community. So this simple shared experience can in some ways unlock the door to more difficult conversations. If we think about this student-centric dynamic, it has a unique ability to normalize behaviors, and we see vulnerability amongst peers being almost contagious.
0: That's great. And I want to ask about the type of students that may show up f- for the groups, because I think one of the very interesting things about the support network is that it can reach and help a wide variety of students with a wide variety of mental health issues, correct? So, to Talk a little bit about that, the type of students that you hope to bring in and the variety of that.
3: Yeah. So as I mentioned before, it's important to note that this model for peer support is not clinical or intended to be a substitute for other professional forms of care like therapy. Now, while there are occasionally heavier topics discussed, you should think of this as a place where students can be themselves, You know, have informal conversations. It is not intended just for students experiencing severe mental health conditions. It's really designed to be inclusive and accessible for all students. Some people join to develop more self-awareness, learn about themselves, to build skills like empathy and active listening that can be useful for their personal and professional lives down the road. Some students join to build high quality, resilient connections, some students join because they want to be generally at more educated about mental health and well-being and get to understand that through the lived experiences of the folks around them. I think currently, the landscape of discussing mental health, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum. One is structured and formal, typically through therapy or a counseling center. And then I think of the other end of the spectrum as especially informal, like with social media or even memes. right? But there's nothing in the middle that is more well-informed, more safe, and more honest and open, not to mention in person. So I think it's able to be a bridge and bringing students from all backgrounds together. And we actually, we do some work to ensure diversity as well amongst these groups.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. It sounds like, Sam, these programs, and you've n- known through the experience with the support network, really fill a gap, right, that that currently exists, even at the most well-intentioned counseling centers or campuses where there's a strong student focus. There's no substitute for this kind of program. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions about peer work and there's a lot of concerns about it as you know. What do you think some of the primary misconceptions that you've seen that you'd like to straighten out would be when you think about this work?
3: Yeah. So, for starters, I know there's a handful of different models out there, so I don't want to generalize about, you know, the whole category of student-centric offerings, mm-hmm. but with our model for peer support, I think that First, some people still think that it's a reactive approach, only if something bad happens to someone, they should sign up, or that it's only for students experiencing a severe mental health condition. This couldn't be farther from the truth. Our view is that mental health should be thought of as proactive, normalized, and regular, You know, similar to your physical health. You know, Instead of just going to the gym when you want to tune up a certain muscle group, it's best to exercise regularly and keep an eye on nutrition. So we think of this as a holistic approach to mental health, not just targeted towards one aspect or another, or, or you know, just intentionally for students experiencing severe mental health condition. We recognize mental health as a full continuum and also a self-discovery journey. I think on the administrative side, we've absolutely seen some hesitancy amongst colleges in adopting a student-centric model like this. And frankly, we think that it's very surface level. A lot of folks are lazy in their analysis and like evaluation of new programs. And it's really at the detriment of the student body. Students are demanding more innovative solutions, not to mention the inadequacy of existing resources, but seeking out more aligned resources, things that are more in touch with what they're looking for. I think there's absolutely a way to work through the legal departments and, and kind of student life departments of college administrators and we'd look forward to those conversations and thing them better understand this approach.
0: So that leads to my last question. I'm going to call my last question a two-part question, so it's really two questions. Sam, do you see programs like this really continuing to grow on college campuses?
3: Absolutely. And and it really it, it keeps me up at night both knowing the amount of progress our organization has seen to date, but also the amounts of schools that are eager to provide this type of community on their campus. So in the last few years, we've received interest from over 150 schools, which I think speaks to the interest level from both students, bottom-up, if you will, and administrators or faculty, top-down. So we're optimistic, we're hopeful, and we're ambitious. We're constantly looking to develop new partnerships, And hopefully streamline this process so that folks who are just joining can really plug and play, leverage existing resources, templates, guides, trainings, etc. I like to think that it takes a village. We're all in this together. So please don't hesitate to reach out. We'd love to chat.
0: So Sam, that leads me to my last question, which is what advice do you have for students who are thinking about starting these programs? And I know you have a lot of specific advice and direction that you give to folks who want to start the support network on their campuses, but but sort of in the in a big picture way. What would you say would be the most important elements to moving the needle on this on your own campus?
3: Yeah. So I think first and foremost, I would say, you know, you're likely not alone in, in your desire to help make your campus a a stronger, better mental health culture or environment. I think there's countless others around you that are similarly motivated to help change the status quo. So that's one, is that you're likely not alone. Two, I think it can be really helpful to identify other champions on campus. So whether that's other similar programs that already exist, perhaps it's other students or faculty that you think might share this interest or, or might be able to help guide you in your research process and discovery of programs and i think lastly i think it's about the long game our organization is hopefully being kind of table stakes at colleges for when my kids are growing up it doesn't happen overnight a lot of times universities are slow moving and process oriented but i think the kind of determination. And just the follow through can really make a difference, perhaps not immediately, but absolutely in the long run and for that next generation of youth.
0: That's great advice. And I like that visual you left us with, thinking about your kids and the next generation and what better supports we can have on campus. Sam Orley from the Support Network, thank you so much for being with us today and best of luck with all this great work.
3: Thank you so much. We look forward to continuing to work together.
0: That was great talking to Sam Orley. He's done such great work there with the support network. He started it when he was in Michigan and took it national. And it's really impressive and growing. So bringing Zoe back in here, Sam calls peer support the missing puzzle piece in the mental health crisis. Now, I think he's talking peer support writ large, many programs under that umbrella. And he focuses or he talks about the huge value of relatability in mental health. So Zoe, I want to ask you this, As a therapist, as well as an administrator, that idea of relatability being a powerful variable in counseling, what would you say about that?
2: I would say that I agree that no matter who you're talking to, whether it's a mental health professional, a peer, a faculty member, an administrator, you want to feel that you can relate to that person. And of course, that's quite a subjective concept. And as to whether peers are the sort of missing piece, missing puzzle piece, as Sam says, I think that they are vital in the puzzle of this communities of care that we're trying to build on college campuses, where all members of the community are looking at their role in improving each other's well-being. And if you do that right, then you improve the community's well-being overall. And so in that way, I definitely agree that students are an
0: important puzzle piece. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, Zoe. Do you think, given the way you describe the community, that we, sort of the collective we, have paid enough attention to the student variable in, say, the last 15, 20 years?
2: Well, I think that students, I saw this very clearly during COVID and afterwards that students are calling to be part of the solution. Having done this work for many years, I think that is a shift. There were times in my career where I felt like students were expecting the administrators to come up with the ways to help them. And I think that they still do, but there is this additional element whereby they want to be contributing to the solutions. And I think we have to allow that not only because they are asking for it, but because it's the right thing to do in terms of having the most innovative programs and services for our students. We need to be hearing their voice. As to whether we've been ignoring it, we haven't been ignoring it, but we are very concerned and continue to be with the burden that it puts on our students to take care of each other. And it is a fine line between encouraging them to support each other and then doing so in ways that doesn't unduly burden them. And so again, that's on us to come
0: up with the ways that, that this can be done as safely and effectively as possible. So yeah, that's a good point. And it leads me to my next question from Sam's interview. So he does group work, a peer-led group work, but he really underscores the point that this is not therapy. So
2: is that important to you? It is. And and I think, again, our paper articulates the concerns that mental health professionals have with untrained, unlicensed people, whether they're students or not, providing therapy. I think it's vital, again, that we provide opportunities for students to support each other without the risk of them delving into areas that have the potential to do more harm than
0: good if we don't think them through properly. And you think, you know, what we call for, which is the evidence-based guidelines around this work, that is beneficial to people in your position, obviously, around the risk that you worry about. But you made a point about the well-being of the students themselves. It will also serve those who are providing peer support, correct?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that if we have standardized protocols and training, for students who choose to support each other in these ways, there will be a whole area of discussion around, you know, when is this something that needs to be passed on to a professional? What are the kinds of things you will notice in yourself when you have taken on too much? And here are all the ways that you can intervene in that moment, which isn't to say you must pass off the peer to someone else, but here are the ways that you can take care of yourself. And in that, decide whether this is a moment where you need to get some additional support for yourself and for your peer. So all of this is really important and is imperative. If we want to grow these programs, we have to be taking care of the students that are going to be taking care of other students.
0: I loved Sam's analogy that working on your mental health, this like consistent exercise, right, is versus kill yourself for the gym if you're out of shape. I love this idea. I, 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 it's sort of a layup question for you because I know your perspective on this stuff, but what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I mean, I think this is the whole discussion of sort of public health strategies and prevention, the, the concept of well-being as opposed to uh, reaction and responding to, you know, things as they come up. We can all improve our mental health and our well-being whether or not we have an actual clinical issue that needs addressing. And I think what he's trying to say is if we prioritize our psychological health and we do what we need to do regularly to maintain it, then we'll have the coping and the resilience skills to respond when there is an adverse event in our lives, which is, of course, inevitable. And the point that, you know, we shouldn't let small things go unaddressed because we'll, they'll get bigger again, speaks to this idea of high stakes versus lower stakes. And if students don't feel comfortable coming to a mental health professional because they think the problem is small, whether or not it is, is again, completely subjective. But if they approach a student, a peer instead, then they can start working on those issues and getting the feedback from others. And then, of course, going to a professional if necessary, even in conjunction with their peer support or following it. That's a great
0: way to put it. Zoe, it is always so great to talk to you. Dr. Zoe Ragusias of NYU and Clinical Director at the Mary Christie Institute, co author of the recent paper Peer Support in a College Setting, which we just released with the Ruderman Family Foundation. Thank you so much for being with us. This has been the Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org where you can sign up for our other programs like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.